Welcome to our service this morning at Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this Sunday the 26th of February. Before Duncan comes to preach, um, I'd like to ask Lisa Brown if she would come and uh, uh, read the scripture passage this morning and then lead us in prayer. Thanks. So this morning's reading is from Acts and it's chapter 20 starting at verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Phraeus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Artistarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the Lieben bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the next day after that we went into Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when he came to them, he said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I, f if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who he himself said, is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Praise be to God. I'm just going to pray for Duncan as he comes and speaks to us. Dear God, we come to you this morning so thankful for this word that we have in front of us, the word that you have given us. And we ask for forgiveness for the so many times when we do not realize how precious this is and we negate to, to read it daily, Father. Um, we just pray this morning that you open our hearts and give us ears to listen and to not fall asleep. Um, and yeah, just really pray that Duncan be guided by your Holy Spirit now as he comes to preach your word to us. We just want to praise you and thank you for yeah, what a gift it is. And may we go away having listened to what you have to say to us this morning, changed, not changed for a few hours, but yeah, changed for this whole week and for years and months to come. And yeah, we just pray all this in your holy and precious son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. And um, if we haven't met, my name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here. Let me encourage you to keep Acts chapter 20 open in front of you. It's printed in the diary you were handed uh, on the way in. And as you're looking that up, let me take the opportunity to say a big thank you to this church family. Um, We have been so well looked after by you in this past month or so following the arrival of Jonah. Folks have brought meals, brought presents, upheld us in prayer, and we are so very grateful. Jonah is a blessing from the Lord, and he's already brought so much joy to us as a family. Um, And we appreciate your continued prayers um, for all of us as we continue to settle into new rhythms and routines. So thank you. And for the first time in a while in Scotland, we seem to be wrestling with the question, what kind of leaders should we want to run the country? What kind of leader should we want to run the country? Would you rather have one that you disagreed with, but who was honest? Or would you prefer to have one who simply said what you wanted to hear, but deep down had no conviction about it? 
What kind of things should our leaders be able to do in order to do this job well? And what kind of people should you keep a hundred miles away from the job? Because nations have been ruined by ill-qualified people getting into positions of leadership. Getting this right really does matter. And churches are no different. Many churches have been destroyed by getting the same thing wrong. What do you think makes a good church leader? Now, believe it or not, it's actually that question that is the beginning of the problem, not the solution. Because the problem is we dare to answer it. Well, they'll need to be a good communicator. Oh, they'll need to have a thick skin. They need to know how to hold a diversity of people together. They need to be smart. And ideally, they would be young, good-looking, popular. The thing is, these are not the things that the Bible says we most need in our church leaders. The chief qualifications are character qualifications. So the Bible will say things like this, well, he should be faithful to his wife, self-controlled, hospitable, yes, able to teach, but not a drunkard, gentle, not argumentative, not a lover of money, And the tragedy is too many are willing to overlook these things, especially if they think someone is entertaining. And in the verses that Lisa read for us today, the Apostle Paul's heart as a Christian leader is on show. We see it in the hard work that he does ministering in churches, which we've seen for many chapters now, but also we see it in his commitment to preparing leaders to take over from him. This is the final leg of Paul's third missionary journey. And Paul knows that he's not got too many more of these kinds of journeys left. And so there's an urgency to what he does in these verses. You see, the era of the apostles is soon to draw to a close, and other leaders will have to take over. But crucially, what kind of leaders? This part of Paul's mission can easily feel like a farewell tour, and we could get frustrated with Paul as we read it because he doesn't break any new territory here. He's going back over old ground, visiting places and people that he's seen before, but this is anything but a sentimental swan song from the great apostle. No, he shows us that it's urgent work because Godly leaders know that the church always needs strengthened. Godly leaders know that the church always needs strengthened. If you were with us last week, we saw the end of Paul's nearly three-year-long mission in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day eastern Turkey. From there, we're told, he crossed the sea west into Europe. And do you see why he's there? Verse 2, to give them much encouragement. This is how Paul understood church ministry. Yes, he's going over the same ground, but he knows that this is what these same churches need and always need. It's strengthening, it's encouragement. 
Here's how he put it in his letter to the Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 4, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The church needs to be encouraged and built up until it comes to the full unity and full knowledge of Christ. And well, that's not done until Jesus comes back. So Paul, he retraces his steps. He goes through Macedonia. He gets the boat back across to Asia again, and he stops in seven, for seven days in Troas. And here in Troas, there is a feel of urgency. The church needs to be strengthened, and the sense of what Paul is doing is that there is not a moment to be wasted. How does Paul do that? Look at what we're told he did in Troas. So from verse 7 down to verse 12, here's the sorts of phrases we, we see. He's talking with them. He's prolonging his speech. He's talking still longer. He's conversing with them a long while. He spends his time in Troas teaching the church. And then there's poor Eutychus, precariously perched on the windowsill on the third floor. The torches in that upper room have been eating up the oxygen and the warmth and the late hour mean that the poor lad fell asleep, dropped out of the window and died. It's a hugely encouraging verse because if the Apostle Paul couldn't keep them awake, then guys like me don't need to be too discouraged. But what we see is there's something really surprising here. And the most surprising thing is not that the Apostle Paul goes down, picks up the boy and he's resuscitated back to life. That's not the most surprising thing. Because here's what would naturally happen after something like that, is that Paul would say, well, you know what, guys, I mean, I suppose it is getting late. Let's all just retire for the night. But there's not a bit of that. It says, verse 11, Paul went back upstairs, had something to eat. They probably shared in the Lord's Supper together. And he continued to speak on until daybreak because he knew that this church needed to be strengthened. He didn't want to waste any opportunity because he's getting on a boat in the morning. This is his last chance to do it. So hold that thought for a moment, That's that, that need for churches to be strengthened. We're going to come back to it. There's something else I want to show you. In, in evangelical Christian circles, there is a bit of an obsession with celebrity, celebrity preachers in particular. And I'm going to confess to you right now that I am part of the problem, not because I'm a celebrity preacher, you, you understand. But for example, I saw a flyer this week for a Christian conference, and the first thing that came into my mind was, why on earth would I go to that? I don't recognize any of the speakers. There's the problem. The problem is that so long as churches only invite the so-called big names, and they keep doing that with the big names until they're in their 80s, then one day they're going to find, well, actually, there's no gifted preachers left. We just liked the guy who just died. 
Paul's approach in his ministry and in this chapter here is in complete contrast to that. We learn here that godly leaders know that new leaders don't grow on trees. Godly leaders know that new leaders don't grow on trees. And I I, I want to point out to you verses 4 and 5. What you see there is nothing new for Paul. He has traveling companions with him. Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. And do you notice where they're from? They're not from Jerusalem, where the church started. They're not from Antioch, where the mission was launched from. No, they're from the very places where Paul had planted and was strengthening local churches. They're from Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, Lystra, Asia. Now, there's probably more than one reason why they're with him. They are likely carrying money from their churches to support the poorer churches in Jerusalem. But it's not as simple as that. For example, the guys from Asia, they join Paul, and instead of heading south and east to Jerusalem, they travel with him west into Europe, only to then come back to Asia. You see, this is more than just delivering money that's going on here. They're with Paul for many months. They're there to shadow him, to observe him, to learn what true Christian ministry is. You see, new leaders don't grow on trees. Paul has to be forward-thinking here in investing in people. If it's going to happen, then church leaders and the churches they belong to need to be forward-thinking. Training is something they need to invest in if they hope to see new leaders raised up. And you will have heard me say this many times if you've been here for any period of time. This remains the greatest need of Scotland at this time. Not new political leadership, but investing in church leadership. Because new churches need to be planted in literally hundreds of communities up and down the nation. And where are we going to find people to lead those new churches? They don't grow on trees. We will find them only in local churches that have invested in people. This is why this church has partnered with others to launch the Ministry Training Academy, a provider of basic ministry training in Aberdeen to make it easier for local churches to equip church leaders for today and for tomorrow. And this church has freed me up to be part of preparing and delivering that vision. And it's been hugely encouraging to see us grasp that vision, and I pray we do so more and more. But this kind of equipping has to happen on a smaller scale as well. It happens when someone who has some area of responsibility in church brings someone alongside them to simply show them how it's done. But it happens as well when Christians deliberately get together to read the Bible together or a Christian book together, to seek to encourage each other, to learn from one another, to grow in their faith. And if you're a Christian today and you're not doing that with anyone, or not even at least part of a small group of some kind, then let me urge you to make that a priority. 
It will be for your growth as a believer, and it will be for the building up of the church. It will be to fulfill the commission that Jesus gives us to make disciples. I mean, that's what Paul is doing here. He's making disciples, not just when he preaches the gospel to unbelievers, but when he travels with these companions, discipling them, showing them by example what kind of leaders God wants in his church. But the bulk of Acts chapter 20 is actually a speech that Paul delivered to a group of leaders in the church in Ephesus. We're told that Paul is in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem, but also he has this urgency. He's desperate to give some final wisdom to these leaders who are part of a church that was very precious to him. He had spent nearly three years in Ephesus. And I think it's important to say, and important for us to bear in mind, that Paul's equipping of these leaders, these Ephesian elders, is not so much from the speech that he delivers as it is from the three years that he was there working and ministering in Ephesus. This is likely the last time he'll see them, and he wants them to pick up the baton of leadership. And let's see three, from this speech, let's see three key things that they must understand if they're going to be godly leaders. The first is that they need to understand the weight of the task. They need to understand the weight of the task. Paul opens his speech to them with a reminder of how he had conducted himself in the two or three years he was with them. Um, You see that there, uh, verse 18. Uh, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And look at where he starts, verse 19. What, what, What was it that marked him out? He was serving the Lord with all humility. This is the weight of the task. Even when Paul knew that what lay ahead for him was imprisonment and afflictions, did you notice that he said that about this is what's coming next for him? He's going to Jerusalem and he faces imprisonment and afflictions. He didn't use that as a reason to change course. He didn't use that as a reason to, to hang up his boots. No, he was determined to follow the Holy Spirit's lead because, look at verse 24, because I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He understood the weight of the task of Christian leadership. And here's what it was. It was not about him. It was about God. It was not about serving himself. It was about serving the Lord. He understood that when he was sharing this gospel message that there was a cosmic mission unfolding before their eyes, something far, far bigger than Paul or any one of these people that's mentioned. And those who take part in that mission need to understand that they're engaged in something that carries a great weight to it. It's a ministry received from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a ministry for 
as it's put in verse 28, for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You're dealing with something precious, Paul says to these leaders in the church. The ministry of leading in the church is therefore not about keeping people happy. It is not about entertaining. It is not building a platform. It is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, throughout the Bible, there is a pattern of when God calls people to serve Him in some way, their first reaction is to say, what, me? Lord, who am I? And Paul was one of those people. To the Ephesians, he wrote, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To me? Given this great cosmic mission, some role in it, to me? The church is precious to God. He paid an unspeakable price that he might have it. And when we serve the church, we're serving the Lord, and understanding that really does liberate. It liberates us to not have to make everything all about me. And it does explain, actually, we don't have time to go into it, but it explains why towards the end of his speech, verse 33, Paul says, you know, I didn't take any financial support from the church, even though he was entitled to it, because he didn't want there to be any misunderstandings, because the mission is bigger than Paul. He wanted everyone to always see that. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about what he could get out of it. It was bigger. It's serving the Lord. This is the weight of the task. And I would say, Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, if you want to have good, faithful leaders, then never try and make yourself more important in their mind than the Lord is. There is such a power in this unifying principle that even when Christians disagree, and that does happen from time to time, I'm told, even when Christians disagree, to make it clear that more important than me getting my way is the strengthening of the church and the glorifying of the Lord whose church it is. Be encouraged today. You may think that your service for the Lord is unnoticed, insignificant, but there is a weight to it. You're serving the Lord, never unnoticed and never wasted. The second lesson they need to learn is to understand the heart of the task. They understand the weight of the task. They're serving the Lord, but they've got to understand what is it they've to do? What is it the heart of the task God has given them? Twice in his speech, Paul tells them that he didn't shrink from doing something, which means he didn't hold back. You know, he could have been tempted to, to hold back on something, but he didn't hold back. And what, what is it? Well, the first is in verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul understood that the heart of the task 
is proclaiming the gospel. Paul understood that there was one thing that human beings needed more than anything else, and that is to be right with God. Paul was a Jew, and he was burdened for his fellow Jews because he could see that despite them seemingly having everything in their favor, all of these promises in the Jewish Bible pointing them to the coming Messiah, most of them missed that Jesus really was the Christ. God's message to them was, you can't, you can't trust on having some historical connection with God. You can't trust in your ability to obey the law. You need His grace as much as anyone. And Paul had had his eyes opened too to see how God cared for the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles or the Greeks, as he put it there. Paul was commissioned to be the apostle to reach pagan nations, many of whom had no notion that a Messiah was even coming. Entrusted into Paul's hands was this message, that from the Jews a Savior has come for all peoples. That whoever you are, you're far from God because of sin, but God has come among us. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, has perfectly fulfilled God's law, has willingly laid down his life on the cross, suffering before God in the place of sinners, the innocent slain for the guilty, and he has risen again from the dead conquering humanity's greatest enemy, death itself. And through that work, this Savior secures for sinners, whether they be Jews or Greeks, forgiveness of sins, a place in the family of God, eternal life, God dwelling within by His Spirit, and finally the ability to do and be what we were made for to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that message comes with a plea, a command even, in verse 21. It's the command to repent, to turn away from the anti-God rebellious life and to turn to God instead, and to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in and to trust in Him. This is the heart of the task of the Christian leader, telling others about Jesus Christ. And I would be neglecting my duty here today if I didn't make that same call to you, because you're going to stand before God one day. I don't care who you are, you're going to stand before God one day. And everything will center on this. What have you done with God's Son Trusted in Him? Turned to Him? Or turned away from Him in rejection? He stands before us today, arms open wide, beckoning whoever will come to come and trust in Him and find forgiveness, find removal of shame, find the promise of everlasting life if you'll simply come and trust Him. Turn in repentance towards God and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that message is the heart of the godly leader's task, not just in seeing people become Christians, but in seeing them grow as Christians. 
Paul says in verse 27, this is this other, I didn't shrink from you sentence. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Whatever local church you belong to, you need leaders who will be willing to declare all that God has said. Not settling on favorite comfortable bits, not riding the same hobby horses week after week, but a readiness to feed on the whole of God's Word. Sometimes that will sting to hear parts of God's Word. But so long as that sting comes from God, you can trust it. You must respond to it. Sometimes hearing the whole counsel of God will stretch us. But what greater thing could we be willing to be stretched about than knowing God better? Let me put a theory to you. Paul taught the whole night in Troas, and even a young man falling to his death didn't stop him from continuing on till morning. My theory is this. He could not have taught in Troas all night if the Christians were not eager to hear him. How does that theory stand up? I mean, it's all very well to have the means that God has given us to strengthen the church. But if very few people want to take advantage of that, then it is not going to be effective. Let me burrow in a little deeper for this church family. There are really no shortcuts in building and strengthening the church. It happens as the Word of God dwells more and more richly in our hearts, as the members of the church uh, hear the Word and speak the truth in love to one another. This is how the church grows. There's no shortcuts. There's no magic formula. You can certainly build a crowd more quickly than that, but you cannot build a church more quickly than doing that. And it's out of this biblical conviction that actually we endeavor to do the things we do as a church. We do not believe in teaching until people fall out the window. But we do believe we need a robust diet of God's words. And tonight is a perfect example of that. It is true to say that most churches in Scotland have dropped Sunday evening services. And particularly since COVID, many of those churches that did have evening services have just never got back to it. People don't want to come out to church twice on a Sunday. So instead, we'll try and do everything in one service. We have not dropped our evening service. And not because of tradition, I can say that confidently, but actually out of a conviction that that one hour on a Sunday evening can be for the building up of the church in lots of ways. As Nigel mentioned earlier, we're going to spend some Sunday evenings. We start at six o'clock. Over the next few months, walking together through the book of Second Timothy. We're going to read it together. We're going to hear a bit about it. We're going to discuss it together. And we're going to pray that God would help us to take it to heart. Some people other than me will have opportunities to teach because, you see, this is a, a way for us to help equip others to lead. You see, my point is to say that Sunday evenings are 
not for the really committed, and they're not for those who've got nothing better to do. It's something that really lies at the heart of what church ministry is. And we don't have to follow the Scottish trend. It is possible that there could be this wonderful aberration in the world that in a place like Bankery, do you know what? I've heard they have a thriving evening service. So what is it that's missing? Is it hunger? Do we not share the conviction that that's worth doing? Now, don't hear me wrong. Sunday evenings are not everything, and not everyone can come. But God's people coming together around His Word, seeking Him as they do so, this is how the church grows. This is how you grow. This is how I grow. Leaders in the church need to understand the weight of the task. It's the Lord's work. They need to understand the heart of the task. It is word ministry. And last of all, they need to understand the cost of the task. We see this in a couple of ways. Uh, When Paul lets them know the prospects for his own ministry, you see from verse 22, Paul's definitely on his way to Jerusalem. He's a clear sense from the Holy Spirit that that's where God wants him to be. And though he isn't clear on what will happen when he gets there, he thinks he has a good idea of the gist of it. Verse 23, it's imprisonment and it's afflictions that lie ahead for him. He fully expects that faithfulness to the mission of proclaiming the gospel will come at a cost. And for the Ephesians too, they need to know that whatever kind of days lie ahead for the church, they should expect it to be costly. Look at those warnings that he gives. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I mean, Paul is saying that what lies ahead, friends, is is a dangerous church life. This is what it is. And so with this in mind, this is why Paul in verse 28 says to those elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. There are wolves to fend off. There are sheep to be cared for and protected. And when you read things like that, and especially um, uh, speaking as as a pastor and an elder, you really do just want to pull the duvet up over your head. I mean, I've, I mean, who feels up to this task? And that's kind of the point that Paul wants to make to them. And none of us are up to this task. Not one of us. The best thing he can do after outlining his guidance is in verse 32. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. It's not good leaders that will build you up. They are at best God's instruments, whereby God, by his grace, builds the church of Jesus Christ. Paul's call to these men for all of the the, the practical things he might have mentioned is to depend upon the Lord. And that's always the pattern. 
Whoever you are here today, that's the, that's the call, is to depend upon the Lord. If, you, if you've never yet trusted in Christ, you're, you're lost in your sins, and the only way you can be saved is to depend upon the Lord, to seek His grace. If you're going to grow as a Christian more and more into the likeness of Jesus, it will be by His, work, by His Spirit at work in us as we depend upon Him. And if we're going to see the church protected and strengthened, it's all God's work by His grace. I'm pleased to let you know that the elders of this church meet every month to focus on prayer. And to to also let you know that Acts 20 are, are verses that are often on our lips as we meet. And I want to urge you, church, to pray for us to pray for the work of God in this place because faithful ministry must cost us our self-dependence. It must cost us our spiritual self-confidence. But praise God, it must throw us instead into the arms of Jesus. And this is where Paul ultimately wants them to be and where surely God wants us to be being entrusted to the word of God's grace, to be resting in the arms of Jesus. Great. Let's just say the grace to each other and to the Lord, and let's, uh, let's just finish our service as we say that. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. <laughs>